I was recently at a public place, and at this public place, uh, someone who is a professing Christian made a comment that went something like this. Uh, there had just been someone who had died uh, in the entertainment industry, and this person said, can you imagine the absolute praise service that's going on in heaven with this person and two others who had died in the last couple of years? And I, I was struck by that, and my, my first thought is that one of the three that she mentioned was, uh, was a Jehovah Witness at best. And for the last 40 years of his life, had lived a, a lifestyle that was well outside of the parameters of anything that would be considered to be a, a belief in Christ. And, and when I heard that, I thought of something that R.C. Sproul said 25 years ago at a meeting I was at. He said, Americans have come to believe not in justification by faith through the work of Christ on the cross, but in justification by death. All you have to be to go to, to all you have to do or be to go to heaven is, is just to die. And it, that's not what the Bible teaches. I, I recently had the opportunity of eating some coconut cake. Uh, I love coconut cake, and somebody gave me some coconut cake, and um, and there were four big pieces, and I ate two of the pieces before I got home from the place where God gave it to me, and. In the aftermath of that, uh, uh, somebody that I know well uh, ate a piece of coconut cake. And I got up the next morning, this person that I know very well, who is a very fastidious eater. You know, this, this is my wife. <laughs> my, my wife makes a, a vegetable shake for me four to five times a day made up of seven or eight vegetables and barley green. And it, it's, it's really not as bad as it sounds, but it's still pretty bad. <laughs> and I drink it, and she, she's a very careful eater. And so... I heard her in the kitchen. I went in the kitchen the next day, and she was eating, uh, eating the last piece of coconut cake. And I said, what, what are you doing? I said, I, I've never known you to ever eat something like this for breakfast. And she said, well, I was going to give this cake to my mom, but it's not going to happen. <laughs> and, and then she said this, which I thought was very interesting. She said, I have read a study recently where if you eat cake in the morning... The caloric intake is nothing. <laughs> that's really pretty good for you. And so I, I thought about that this week, and I thought that's what's called coconut cake theology. <laughs> coconut cake theology or coconut cake exegesis is this. In spite of the plain facts this, that, that are known and that has been known historically by the people of God, I choose to believe the following. Be very careful of coconut cake theology. There was a book released a few couple of years ago called Love Wins. I did read it. It's a book about hell, about the fact that he just says, well, maybe there is no hell. Maybe in the end love wins and hell will be emptied. And, 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 and it's a perfectly horrible book, to be honest with you. It's, it's a bad book exegetically. It's, it's, and it, it created some other articles this cover story from Times Magazine was about the book entitled, What If There's No Hell? And again, this is, to me, this is what I call coconut cake theology. In spite of the plain teaching of Scripture, in spite of what the church has believed historically, um, this is who we are and this is what we do. 
And that's why our, our purpose statement is, goes like this, equipping people out of the Word of God. Equipping people to pursue Christ passionately as they impact the culture. That's who we are. That's what we're about. So let, let me read or go, show you a few plain teachings here on the reality of judgment. We've come to this passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. I knew it was coming, and it's, I, I, I've been praying about it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, the, the pattern is they turn to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. Continual turning from idols, continual exaltation of Christ, and to wait on His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead. This is Jesus who saves us from the coming wrath. So the, the, the paradigm in the early church is that they, you know, they, they got rid of idols. They were heavenly minded and they gloried in the reality of Christ who has covered them from the coming wrath. Matthew 25, 41, Jesus says that he will then say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Verse 46, Then they will go away to the eternal punishment but the righteous to eternal life. Mark chapter 9. Jesus says, If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And then the imagery, I know it's imagery, but it's a telling statement. In Revelation 14, for example, and I could read many verses, but just listen to this. It says in verse 10 that... that he too will drink from the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest or night for those who worship the beast in his image or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. They've rejected Christ. It is forever and ever. So... so we come to this passage with, with great, great sobriety and, and with a desire to really deal with it. I, I, as I think about our church and, um, and I think about equipping people to pursue Christ passionately, I, there's a wonderful little book written by a man named John Frame about a man named J. Gresham Mason who, who started Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, was a, a, a godly man who stood for the truth. And, and Mason died in 1937 at the age of 57, 58. But, but the, the title of this paper is, is Mason's Warrior Children. And I thought that we should, every, every church should be thinking about their church's warrior children, East Cooper's warrior children. What are we teaching our children? How are we teaching them to stand? How, how, how are we teaching them uh, to, to understand and to think biblically about the world around them. And, and that's why we, we want to equip people. And we want, we want to understand the difficult things of Scripture. And this is a difficult thing. This is very difficult. But, but it, it is incredibly sobering and it's entirely necessary. He saves us from the wrath to come. Hell, Wayne Grudem says, hell is a place of eternal conscious torment and punishment for the wicked or those who have rejected Christ or those who knew not Christ. So three points, then some application. N number one, God's wrath is his settled opposition to evil. His settled opposition to evil. Hear this. God is not wrath 
God is love. Behold the cross of Christ. Wrath is a secondary attribute of God. Wrath is that which is called forth from the person of the triune God because of evil. It's his response to evil. It is his settled opposition to evil. There's a quote in the bulletin from J.I. Packer, and it says this. Thus God's love, as the Bible views it, never leads him to foolish, impulsive, immoral actions in the way that its human counterpart too often leads us. And in the same way, God's wrath in the Bible is never the capricious, self-indulgent, irritable, morally ignoble thing that human anger so often is. It is instead a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. And he says this, God is only angry when anger is called forth, is, is called forth from him. His wrath, his judgment that, that we experience. So, that, number two, the revelation of God's ultimate wrath will be on Judgment Day. But, but listen, there is a present reality of God's judgment that is being poured out upon those who reject him and who have walked away from his truth. Romans chapter 1 says this. The wrath of God, verse 18 is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They, they, they push it down. They walk away from it. They walk away from the light. They, they, they suppress it. And then it says this, verse, verse 24. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over, verse 26, to shameful lust. You see, so there, there's a process here. You, you, you harden your heart, you move away, you move away, you move away. To shameful lust, even their women, even their women. It's interesting. I've often thought that Paul dropped his quill and put his head in his hand. And he said, even the women. He said, even the women who, who really in any culture, the women usually are the last bastion of decency. He says, even their women exchange natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty of their perversion. Verse 28, furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, God gave them over. They walked further and further from the light to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. He goes on, he says, he says, not only do they do these things, but they, they hardly approve of those who practice them. They stand up and give them an ovation. You see, that is the progressive movement of people out of the light. See, the, the, here's, here's the standard. The standard is, is God's truth, but people go further and further and further and further from it. 
And when, when you do that, your, your thinking becomes more and more cloudy and, and more and more skewed in certain areas, no matter how bright you are, because you've rejected the knowledge. In John chapter 3, Jesus says the same thing. When he talks about, he, he says this. He says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will never perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his world into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the verdict, he says. And this is from the lips of God Almighty. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. They run from the light. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what is done has been done through God. You run into the light. You love it. So, so, so these issues, church, listen, these issues should only be handled with tears. There are, there's, there's, there are people who follow folks around and they hold up billboards or statements to say God hates and they fill in the blank. And you know, when, when I read about people like that, I think either, either they're just hopelessly deluded or they're, or they're, they're in, they're walking under the power of the forces of darkness because that is not what the Bible teaches. I, I, I always think of, of the example of Christ in, in Matthew 23, 37, where he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. The pathos of Christ. The broken heart of Christ. I think of the Apostle Paul and when he's talking about the mystery of the, the reality of God's love. In Romans chapter 9 he says, he says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I, I could wish that I myself were, were cursed and, and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. He says, I, he says, I, I would, he said, gladly be cursed. I would be cut off from Christ if only my countrymen would respond to the gospel of redeeming love through the cross of Jesus. We should weep for people. I think of an example I read about years ago. William Booth, who founded the Salvation Army, sent some young men to, to New York to start a work for the Salvation Army, and they found no response. And they sent him a telegraph, or really a letter, several pages talking about what they had tried and how it hadn't worked. And he read it, and he sent them back a two-word telegraph. Two-word telegraph. It said this, try tears. Do we... Do we I think about judgment. I think about the wrath to come. I think about the, the, the outpouring reality of people walking away from the light. And it should break our hearts. See, this is, this is the verdict, Jesus says. People have walked away from the light. 
And as they walk further and further from the light, further and further, they, they, they're, they're clouding is, or their thinking is clouded, and they just, they, they just don't. A couple of examples. This, this passage deals with the issue of homosexuality. It's very clear. It's very plain. There's an article in uh, an International Magazine. It's about a book entitled the, the Declining Significance of Homophobia, which the, the title kind of belies what it's about. And this is the graph they, they showed about the, the issues. The question is sex between same-sex people is always or mostly wrong. And as late as 1990, we're the Carolina Blue, maybe that's a, kind of a, we're the Carolina Blue line, U.S., Citadel Blue. Uh, as late as 1990, it was at almost 80%. Now, is it uh, 50? You walk away from it. That, that's the world our children live in. Another example, there was a report released last week by uh, two professors. One was a professor at the University of Milan. The other was a professor of human bioethics at Melbourne University in Australia, but also is associated with Oxford University. So these are not inconsequential thinkers. It's entitled, Afterbirth, Abortion, Colon, what should, Why Should the Baby Live? Question mark. And the writer said we have three points to, to, to put, and I'm just read it very briefly. Uh, point, point number one is both fetuses and the newborns do not have the same moral status as actual persons. Their whole argument is that a newborn baby is a potential person and is so until a, 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 until a time determined by whomever. I don't know if it's two years, three years. So, so newborn babies do not have the same rights, or fetuses, you know, of an actual person. That's point number one. Point number two is that, that both, both are, fetuses and the newborn, are, the, the fact that both are potential persons is morally irrelevant. And number three, adoption is not always in the best interest of the actual person. Therefore, killing a newborn should be permissible in all the cases where abortion is allowed, including cases where the newborn is not disabled. And and then let me just read a couple of sentences. I think I have the quotes up here. Now, let me say this. I'm 58. I have said a lot of stupid things. I've read a lot of stupid things. I've heard a lot of stupid things. This is the most inane, asinine, stupid hellish thing I think I've ever read in my life from the pens of internationally known academics. See, I, don't, I love academics. I love people that have used their education under the harness of Jesus. I don't care how smart you are, though, if, if you continually walk away from the light. Study the IQ of the inner circle of Hitler's men. Several of them would have been in the Mensa Society. You walk away from the light. Listen, listen to this. This is, this is breathtaking to me. It's breathtaking to me. That's... Indeed, they said, this is about adoption. Indeed, however weak the interest of actual people can be, they will always trump the alleged interest of potential people, newborns, 
to become actual ones because the latter interest amounts to zero. I, I capitalize zero. In other words, the, the, the real rights of a newborn is just zero. I can only say this. Birth mothers are often reported to experience serious psychological problems due to the inability to elaborate their loss and cope with their grief, the grief of their, the death of their child in abortion or right after the child is born. It is true that grief and sense of loss may accompany both abortion and afterbirth abortion as well as adoption. They say, they say this, but we cannot assume that for the birth mother, the latter is the least traumatic. Now just stop. What they're saying is, this is what sent me apoplectic. I was apoplectic the whole time. My, my blood pressure was probably had five strokes and didn't know it. What they're saying is that who are we? To say? We can't really say that 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 uh, that adoption for the birth mother is less traumatic than seeing their newborn put to death. I'm sorry. There are third grade students at PCA who are smarter than that. We just saw a little baby dedicated. So what they're saying is that is that it, that that if you take a newborn baby and kill it. That is, who's to say that that's more traumatic than taking a beautiful newborn baby and walking across the hall and giving it to a mom and a dad who for years have prayed that God would give them a child. The stupidity of that is astounding. And this is in the Journal of Medical Ethics. What I'm saying, you know, God, God saved these people. You know, but, but please, please understand that this is significant stuff. This is real. Wrath is real. Hell is real. I don't want you. Go, I don't want you to go there. 1741, there's a man named Jonathan Edwards. He'd seen a sweeping movement of the Holy Spirit in his area of the country in Massachusetts. He had a friend who was a pastor in Enfield, Connecticut. He said, the, the, the first great awakening has really touched my church. Could you come? And Jonathan Edwards went and he preached a sermon that many of you have read in American Lit entitled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And what's interesting about that is that, is that Edwards, when Edwards preached, we, are, we, we read that he, he preached from exhaustive notes and he preached for an hour to hour and a half minimal. And he was an incredibly bright person. And he would basically read his sermon. He wasn't demonstrative. I mean, he would raise his voice, but he wasn't, he wasn't, he wasn't, he just wasn't demonstrative. And so he preached this sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And as he preached it, men and women were, were, were standing in the back, uh, sobbing. People were, were laying in the pew weeping because Edwards talked about the judgment that was to come. And I, I would suggest to you in, in the vast majority of churches today, if we read that sermon, even if we, you know, paraphrased it and used trendy language, people would say, what in the world is going on? Has our pastor had a stroke or something? What's going on? This is rid- ridiculous. And the issue is that in 1741, people had a supernatural worldview. Even if they had rejected the gospel today, we have, we have very little one. 
And I'm saying that as people of God, we have to realize that heaven is real, hell is real, the cross saves us. So point number three is this, deliverance only comes through Christ. That's why we tell people about Jesus. That's why we have missionaries in places all over the world. Because there's salvation only in Christ. First Thessalonians, later in this book, says, For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Can you say that? Thanks be to God. I, I, I'm not going to suffer wrath. I am going to receive salvation through the cross work of Jesus. Do you know that hope? I, mean, I want you to know that hope. See, between the judgment of God and our present day experience, between the thunderings of judgment and daily living is the cross of Jesus. And there's salvation in that. Romans 5, 9 says, Since we have now been justified by his blood, declared righteous by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God has provided a Lamb. The Lamb of the Day of Atonement has come and fulfilled the Old Testament sacrificial system. And His name is Jesus. Do you see that? Do, 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 you, do, you, do you know that? Now just some application statements very quickly. This, but number one is this. Personal urgency. Personal urgency. Are you in Christ? See, Edward says this in his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He says, almost every natural man that hears hell flatters himself that he shall escape it. He he depends upon himself for his own security. He flatters himself in what he's done and what he's now doing or he intends to do. I may be bad, but Joe's worse. Everyone, everyone lays out matters in his own mind, how he shall avoid damnation and flatters himself that he contrives well for himself and that the scheme will not fail. Don't flatter yourself. There's only one way to enter into a relationship with a God who is, and that is the cross of Christ, Jesus, who saves us from the wrath to come. There's a man named Brownlow North. I think I have his picture here. He was a very uh, well-educated, wealthy man in Scotland in the 1800s. Brownlow North uh, had the leisure and the money to do what he wanted to do, so he was involved in excessive whatever, gambling, known as as a gambler. He drank to excess. He did a lot of things to excess. And then he got sick of his life and he tried to become morally reformed and he did the moral reform bit. And he said after two years he was more miserable than he'd ever been trying to be morally reformed. In his biography it says that in the, in 18, or 54, North was at his home in Abernshire and he was almost 44 and his the second week of November, he was sitting in his billiard room after dinner, gambling and laughing with his friends. And then he says this, suddenly he was seized with violent pains, which were so severe that he was sure he was about to die. And he says this, my first thought 
was now what will my 44 years of following the devices of my own heart profit me in a few minutes i shall be in hell and he survived he said he got when he got on his knees he said god have mercy on me a sinner he read the bible he struggled he finally wrote in his new testament a few months later brownlow north a man whose sins crucified the Son of God, saved by the work of Christ. Do you have that hope? See, is there a personal urgency? Personal urgency. I talk to people frequently. Says, "Well, yeah, yeah. I don't disagree with what you're saying, kind of, sort of, but I'm going to wait." Man, don't wait. Don't don't wait. We all have friends. Don't, 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 don't wait. Number two, are you experiencing the reformation that comes into the heart of a child of God when the Holy Spirit has freedom to work? Even among Christians, according to Hebrews 3, there's, a, there's an opportunity sometimes for us to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I, are you being softened and led led to repentance and, and led to gentleness by the Holy Spirit of Christ as he's poured into your heart? Are you being changed? Do you see Jesus alive in your life? And then just, just this. Um... If you're a Christ follower, um, plead with people. Let's let's plead with people. Let's plead with people that we love. That just say, you know, I I, I, I really care for you. I love you. I, I just, do you understand the only way? To go to heaven is through the work of Christ on the cross for your sins. He's eternal God. He died on the cross for your sins. It's it's such a simple message, but it's so profound. Do do you understand that? Just plead with people. Just, Just be like Jesus who wept over Jerusalem or like Paul who said, I would be cursed and cut off from Christ. If only my countrymen could be saved. If only my children could be saved. If only my parents could be saved. If only my friends could be saved. If only my neighbor, if only, if only. Now, I, I, I read this and I just say, God, forgive me for not weeping more. Forgive me. Forgive me for not grappling with the incredible dimensions of hell and wrath. Oh God, you are God and you are loved because in the fullness of time you became a man and lived a perfect life and died on the cross for my sin. My sins crucified Jesus. And I have not been appointed to wrath, but I've been appointed to life through the shed blood of Christ. Well, let's pray.
Lord, this, is a, this text is incredibly sobering, and we would ask that you would, Lord, allow us to weep more for people, allow us to go to people and, and befriend them and love them and say, I, I'm just a beggar who found an oasis, and I'm trying to, to show other people who are stumbling in the desert where the oasis is, and the oasis name is Jesus um, God, forgive us for um, not just loving people. Uh, forgive me. Forgive me. And uh, I, I thank you that this little letter called First Thessalonians gives us a paradigm of faith, continually getting rid of idols to serve the living and true God. To wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. His name is Jesus, and he is the one who saves us from the wrath to come. Lord, there is judgment. And, 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 and Lord, we want to meet you in glory one day. We can only meet you through the high priestly work of Jesus. And I, I, just, I just pray you'd work in our lives and fill us with sobriety and fill us with deep love for people. In Jesus' name, amen.